This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second episode over that great American classic, To Kill a Mockingbird. Last week, we introduced our author and both of her published books. We compared them briefly. We looked at the titles of each and then focused more specifically on the uh, origins and inspirations of Mockingbird. We looked at Lee's historical moment and argued that Lee's novel, although set in the 1930s, was far more interested in the world of the 1950s, more so than the 1930s, because it was a world struggling with civil rights. And we will develop the theme of racial injustice in the second part of the book, of course, but today, as we lay out the groundwork for that part, we will continue our focus on part one. Last episode... We ended our discussion talking about Maycomb, the tired old town where Lee set her story, a town which could be seen more like a character than an actual place. And uh, Maycomb is a broken place, and this brokenness is on display in several ways. I mean, part one only hints at the racial division that is the focus of the second section, but that doesn't mean it isn't setting us up for. I mean, uh, Lee carefully introduces several major themes and motifs. Uh, then she proceeds to develop them throughout the book and even beyond the trial. And these themes um, should be considered as we read this section of this part of the book for one reason, because they provide a framework from which we should understand the insanity of the trial and its aftermath. And if you can't understand Makem, you would not believe such a facade of a trial could even be possible. So, Christy, can we say the primary role of Section 1 is foreshadowing then? Well, uh, no, I, I'm not sure I would say it's the <laughs> no? primary role. I mean, for, there is foreshadowing. No, that's for sure. It surfaces in many ways. Uh, but... Uh, I think groundwork is better. I mean, Harper Lee is laying the framework for a larger discussion that is about race, but it's more than that. Race is the context, but she's framing the racial discussion that we will have later. 
make them is the microcosm of society, maybe any society at large. Society not just about the segregated South of her day, the disease of racism, and it is a disease, that's the metaphor of the book, um, has several causes. And what she's interested in are these causes. The first half is charming. I mean, it's disarming. It's less intense. It's less emotionally jarring than the second part of the book. The language gets more offensive the closer we get to part two. But she's setting setting us up for how she wants us to understand the racism that she's going to expose us to and what she thinks we can and should do to address these sorts of things in our world. Her argument is nuanced. And much of it is delivered through the words of Atticus and Capernaum, although Uncle Jack and Miss Maudie weigh in as well. It's illustrated through the actions of the children as they interact with these different groups in their community. We have the Cunninghams and the Radleys and the Yules and Mrs. DeBosey. Lee explicitly discusses man's relationship with power, its use and its abuse of power. Lee blatantly spells out for us what a mockingbird symbolically represents and this principle of protecting the innocent. Atticus not only tells his children to learn to understand the lived experiences of those around them, but forces this lesson upon them in a, in a way that comes across as very cruel, really, a way of, to learn a lesson. But as we walk with Scout, we are to learn these same lessons before Lee forces us to apply the lessons in a very adult world of experience, which is cruel and ruthless in a lot of ways. Now, when we read a literary novel, and by that I mean a novel that's trying to explore you know, universal truths, it's important to keep in mind uh, that all the literary elements are leading us to theme But maybe it's not just one theme. There could be multiple themes. And Lee is saying more than one thing about our world, which is why we can read this book over and over and look at it slightly differently each time. And it's why we'll never talk about everything there is to talk about in this book. I mean, if we break down all the different elements, the symbols, the characters, the different settings, her tone toward these various things, her point of view, the dialogue, the plot, we see that she's weaving And when we step back and we look at the piece as a whole, we see a very sophisticated piece of rhetoric. There's no way we could ever talk about every detail uh, of this book, not even of the first half. I'm not even sure. Well, I know for a fact there's no way we've seen everything there is to see in this book, but we'll at least kind of hit the high points. Last episode, we said this book is about growing up, specifically about Jim growing up and being a man or a gentleman to use the gendered language of the book. And although the phrase itself is not expressing gender, um, there are lots of males in this book that are not men. The definition of maturity is connected with age for sure. The expression being a man means being mature. And Scout claims that Atticus was feeble on account of his being 50, which I take personally uh, as an insult. (laughs) You know, and if, if... if you're an adult, which most readers are, uh, that doesn't seem near as old as it did when you were 8 or 12 no. years old. But it's also connected with wisdom and living according to principles and knowing the difference between right and wrong and choosing to do that part. In part one, Jim is very much a child. He very much wants to be a man, 
Uh, and it's in this first part that he learns what that means, at least to his father. In part two, this vision of manhood will be tested on Jim in no small way, uh, partly because of what he watches unfold before him at Tom Robinson's trial. The trial and the aftermath break him, as it should all of us, as we watch the manifestations of this uh, deadly disease of racism. Yes, and Calpurnia signals for us that there's this transition going on on the first page of the second part, which when we get to, we'll point out. Because in the second part, she insists on calling Jim Mr. Jim, a courtesy that is noticeably not extended to her. Scout, on the other hand, does not grow up. She's the constant. We notice Jim developing because Scout really develops very little. In fact, she fights the growing up experience in many ways. You know, yes, and and that's the right word. She physically fights. She wants to fight everyone all the time. I mean, it's her go-to way to resolve conflict. Yes, and getting the violence out of her is of the utmost concern to her father, which is not the same as being a lady as defined by Aunt Alexandra. You know, Scout's the voice of innocence, and when we see the world through little Scout's eyes, we see Lee's vision of what maturity looks like and what it doesn't look like, what a healthy transition from innocence to experience is. Atticus wants Scout to, in some sense, be a man in the same way he wants Jim to. He doesn't define maturity by wearing dresses or by forcing Scout to attend society meetings. Uh, There are many males in this book who Atticus defines, and he literally explicitly calls them trash. And we would agree with him that that's kind of what they are. This book has a lot of trash. Uh, There are also many women in this book who are horrible. The difference between manhood and trash is a big concern for Jim, and that means it must be a concern for Lee. If the proper exercise of power is symbolized through this patriarchal system of manhood, and it clearly is, at least manhood itself is symbolizing the mature human, the principled human, a person who is in a right relationship with himself, with his religion, and with his community. It also includes one more thing. Manhood involves a sensibility to injustice, taking responsibility for learning or your own education, and using your personal power to prevent violence. And that's not just in the world, but it's in yourself. It involves the ability to grow. So Lee argues all these things uh, define us as being courageous or men, because we're going to use this little gender term. Those who are not gentlemen, who are not men, well, that's the other sort of people. They're the ones with the disease. They're feral. They're trash. It's rough. I mean, <laughs> you know, speaking of gendered language, there is a noticeable amount of gendered language in this book. Uh, not just talk of manhood, but also of womanhood. Uh, Scout is constantly being berated by her brother for being or acting like a girl. And it's an insult coming from him, of course. <laughs> and Alexander's obsession with making Scout a proper Southern lady. Uh, not only is it a fail, but from the reader's perspective, but it's nothing anyone should ever really aspire <laughs> to know. be. You know, with the exception of Calpurnia and Miss Maudie, 
women are not portrayed in a positive light. The female aggression in this book is toxic and dangerous and difficult to navigate. And I am a student of female aggression. I find it very <laughs> fascinating for the simple purpose that most males have no idea what it is. Well, I hope you don't feel it from home. <laughs> Don't call me feral. Oh, it also reeks, by the way, this female aggression of terrible hypocrisy, especially towards the end of the book. In fact, it's kind of hard to read. Yeah, You're not wrong. You know, female aggression is treacherous. And part of the reason why it's so treacherous is because it can be passive and it can be coated with niceties and stereotypically Southern but, of course, women all over the world can pull it off. I mean, Lee uses the Southern Gothic style that hyperbolizes everything to highlight this natural human, and I hate to admit it, probably female tendency towards <laughs> passive aggression. And since you brought up Calpurnia, who in many ways I think is Atticus's counterpart, she's aggressed on from several places. Yes. Um, Calpurnia is really a difficult character if we look at this book historically. Um, it's glaringly obvious that for a book where even the animals have last names, Calpurnia does not have one. Uh, she works in the house of a man she grew up with who is single, but no one seems to think a thing about it. There's no mention of a husband or any social life at all. You know, for a man so given to respect, um, it's also obvious that she's the only woman not given the proper title of Miss or Mrs., not even uh, by Atticus. And, uh, she's the only good mother figure, uh, really, at least for the Finch children. She works terribly hard and always has, but still, um, Aunt Alexander tries very hard to subvert her every chance she gets. Of course, historically, unfortunately, this is how a lot of African-American women housekeepers were treated all the way through the Civil Rights era. Uh, but for a book and a family so been on courage, it really seems like a glaringly obvious blind spot on the part of our hero, Atticus. Yes, and all of these details about Calpurnia having an entire other life come out later in the book. And as we go through the book, especially during the second part, we see an increased level of detail as Scout's narrative account vacillates more and more between her childhood understanding and this ironic adult Scout who reflects back on her childhood and understanding years later. And it's a little tricky, and if you don't catch the irony that's sometimes uh, in the text, you know, Lee reminds you every once in a while with these phrases that will remind you that she's kind of going back and forth in time when she says things like when we were small or throughout my, my life, you know, making you real throughout my early life, making you realize that although I'm telling you what I saw at the time, I'm looking back at it in kind of a reflective way. This is especially true when we get into all the language about the sexual innuendo, which we're going to get into a lot of that. Scout is clearly not sexualized. No, I mean, she's she has not. no idea of what rape is, and her father's legal explanation, while accurate, <laughs> is funny to the reader. She certainly doesn't pick up on any of the brouhaha about Tom's true crime of uh, attracting the sexual attention of a white woman, which, of course, is the crime for which he ultimately paid for with his life. Yes, and although this uh, thematic reason, and I say it is the thematic reasons that are driving these choices, Scout's innocence, it brings, I don't know, kind of a refreshing 
delight to the story. It's cute when she talks about being engaged to Dill and about uh, how he kisses her, then he neglects her, and even him wanting, even her, not him, but even her wanting him to spend the night. It's very non-sexual. Establishing Scout's innocence as a child is really important. But equally as important to establish, and I think something that we need to mention because it's very firm, is that Lee is establishing a feminine voice. Scout, although a tomboy, is not a boy. She's a girl. And this is the story of a woman. Uh, To use Atticus's words, Lee is asking us to walk in the shoes of a girl growing up in a world that in many ways is hostile to girls, and not just by men, but also by other females, especially if you're a girl who prefers, you know, uh, overalls and aspires never to become a lady. A female understanding is not the same thing as a man's. And in fact, when you read some of the critiques of the movie, that's been the knock on the movie, although, you know, people love it, but they don't like the fact that he abandoned when they made the movie the feminine perspective. Uh, so, do you think there's something to see as far as the hierarchy of power as it relates to gender and race? I mean, is that important to Lee? I'm sure. Uh, although those two things are not the same, which leads us to, you know, the racism of the South as is observed but never understood by Scout. Racism, I want to highlight, is not a motif in the book, which is interesting because this book, we think of it as being about racism. And of course it is, but it's not the thread that's stringing the story from beginning to end. Racial injustice is the ultimate, vivid, and hideous expression of a broken society. It is for sure the dominant problem in Maycomb, but it is not the original cause of the breakdown of their society. It's not mentioned in the chapters that develop the dominant themes of the book. Racism is the deadly expression of root problems that are deep and difficult to eradicate. They're problems of ignorance and cowardice and man's ruthless human desire to climb hierarchies. And these are things that express themselves in this segregated world. But I would argue Lee may be suggesting that these are base human tendencies and they can and do express themselves ruthlessly anywhere at any time. And I would even say, go so far as to say they would find a way to manifest themselves even if we lived in a world with only one race or maybe even one gender. The racism of this small town in southern Alabama is raw and it's obvious. And so it displays how toxic and destructive this brokenness can be in a matter so obvious that even if you're a child, assuming you aren't blinded by your own culture, you can see it on your own. Makem is the microcosm. White Southerners are not the only race on earth to express a need to feel superior to their fellow man. They're not the only race uh, to want to be an insider at the cost of displacing others as outsiders. They're not the only ones to push others down as an easy alternative to build themselves up. Lee explores these questions, but I'm not quite sure she gives a full answer. In the first part of the novel, she sets up these wonderful metaphors and constructs a world of childhood fantasy. It's innocent. The aggressions feel small and innocuous. It's about building snowmen, getting treasures out of trees, getting in fights in the schoolyard. In the second part, the aggressions are are overt. Readers feel rage and anger with Jim and Scout as they watch this trial. 
the language and hypocrisy of the women following the trial is basically unreadable. Tom's victimization, Bob Ewell's violence, it's shocking. Lee builds her case through these motifs in the beginning, and she repeats them throughout the book. By the end of the book, not even the residents of Maycomb are blind to the price we pay for ignoring human cruelty or indulging ignorance. But even Maycomb can mature into manhood. Christy, you are using the word motif a lot. Let's take a moment to get a refresher on what that is. (laughs) Yeah. So a motif is something that repeats over and over again. It can be anything. I'll give you an example. When I was small, uh, my mom wanted to decorate our kitchen with the motif of strawberries. So everywhere in the kitchen, you would see strawberries. They were on our water filter, on the cookie jar, on the curtains, on the napkins, on the dish towel. They were everywhere. A few years later, you know, strawberries fell out of favor. Uh, My Aunt Kathy lives in Monroe, Louisiana. She picked up the motif of the rooster and did the same thing all over her yeah. kitchen with a rooster. She even bought a giant porcelain one that I can remember. Same thing with books. Motifs are things that keep coming back. Everywhere you look, you see it. So, like I said, Scout's preoccupation with being a girl, that's a motif. Jim growing up is a motif. The Mockingbird is a motif. Education is a motif. Makeup's obsession with its caste system is a motif. Ignorance and superstition are motifs. The Radley House is a motif. So if you can see what I'm talking about, these are things that just keep popping up over and over and over. And they all connect one way or another to the universal theme that Lee wants to develop. And that's what I mean when I say there is a lot going on, more than we could ever talk about. And she introduces almost everything in the first chapter. But all the chapters in the first section highlight these issues and they will resurface again in the trial, through the lens of race, and then they'll be discussed again in the end in the context of Jim and Scout's development after the trial. When we start reading a book, you know, we really don't know what we're looking for, but reading is pattern watching. And when we start to identify the patterns, then we can track with the train of thought, not just with the plot, but track the rhetoric. And this book is rhetorical. Well, since we're talking about things to notice as we read the book, uh, one thing, although I'm not sure it's a motif after that explanation, (laughs) uh, that I think is particular to this book is Lee's uh, impressive understanding of Southern agriculture and animal life. She's familiar with more wildlife than a lot of people reading her book. I mean, that's for sure. Lee was born and raised in a rural agricultural-based community. And listening to the dialogue reminds us of how important uh, of, of life partner nature is to people away from big cities. I mean, if you're an urban dweller, you might learn a few things. For example, uh, how to catch a ringworm. Or how to, <laughs> no one wants to do that. Or how to take care of azaleas in a freeze, which is a common thing here where we are. Of course, the title references a mockingbird, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Alabama as a state, if you've never been there has you know a wide range of topographical features um it's not just flat like you might think of the southern delta being and the north of alabama is on a rugged plateau and birmingham is very hilly but when you get to the coast they have uh, lots of beaches and alabama is full of uh, forests uh, besides the areas that have farmland there is a lot of wildlife in alabama i mean uh, wild turkeys and deer are common and The book is very aware of nature, and nature plays a role. 
You know, Lee mentions over 16 different animals, and she talks about insects, lice, you know, which they call cooties, red bugs, lightning bugs, roly-polies. They all play a role in the story, you know, not to mention over a dozen different kind of birds they talk about. I don't think it's an accident that our protagonists are named after birds. The finches, you know, uh, most of us notice that the animals have very human names. Uncle Jack's cat is named Rose Aylmer. The the mad dog is Tim Johnson. Judge Taylor's dog is named Ann Taylor, which, if you're not careful, you'll mistake for his wife's <laughs> name. All the characters, even the kids, know a lot about how the natural world works. And the country folk uh, more than the town people. So Jim even reminds Scout that you have to know about cows because they are a big part of life in Macon County. (laughs) True. Uh, And beyond just what she physically describes or literally describes, Lee uses a lot of animals in her figurative language, and that is such a Southern thing to do. I'll never forget moving to Arkansas when I went to college, and a girlfriend of mine from Warren, Arkansas, looked up after me after we ate dinner, and she said, I'm fuller in the tick than a bucket of blood. Oh, my. I had never heard anyone talk like that in my life. And I could visualize in my mind, you know, a tick contentedly <laughs> drowning himself in a bucket of blood. It stayed with me all these years. Oh, yeah. That's just the beginning of the colorful language of the South. Uh, Lee has a lot of fun displaying all these Southern colloquialisms in her dialogue from Makem. I mean... Everyone from Calpurnia to the kids to the judge, they talk using animal life to explain things they see in the world. And, you know, they are just living closer to nature, and nature plays an important role in how they understand the world. Well, there are a few places in the story that animals play, you know, a really significant role, like the mad dog or Jim cutting off the top of Mrs. DeBose's camellia bushes. Other places, though, it's just the description, like when Bob... Yule is described as a red little rooster. (laughs) One of the most enjoyable ways to read this book is just to sit back and enjoy the language. And invoking nature is something, you know, if you notice it's what she's doing, makes it kind of richer to read. Who can enjoy a good comparison to a bucket full of Catawba worms and a nice (laughs) dialogue about roly-polies? I mean, in some ways, it softens the blow when she hits us with these really heavy topics like drug addiction and child abuse or or racism. It still amazes me uh, when I think about how serious these topics are in this book, and it's read by middle schoolers. I know. But speaking of middle schoolers, uh, we talked about Jim's maturity as being the first motif introduced in the beginning and that we're going to watch him as we walk in Scout's shoes down the streets of Makeham on her journey to maturity. Uh, But I want to point out the second big emphasis or big motif, and that would be education. Chapter 2 centers around formal education and the social stratification that surrounds our formal education. In chapter two, Scout, who in her words, quote, never looked forward more to anything in my life, has a rude awakening about what school is really like when she gets there on that first day. We're introduced to her teacher, Miss Caroline Fisher, a college graduate from Winston County, Alabama. Gary, tell us about Winston County, Alabama, and how Lee uses, among other things, the character of Miss Caroline to mock. America's fine educational system. <laughs> I would like to point out the first most important thing about Miss Caroline is that she's from North Alabama, which I guess technically makes her a Yankee. 
in their mind. Yes. Uh, you know, of course, no one outside of southern Alabama would consider northern Alabama the north, but Winston County could be viewed that way. And uh, it's not like other places in Alabama, and even a six-year-old child knows it. You know, what Scout says about Winston County is absolutely true. Uh, during the Civil War, when Alabama seceded from the Union and joined the Confederacy, Winston County, Alabama, seceded from Alabama, you know, making a bold stand against the Confederacy. And I would just like to point out, historically, there were several counties in all southern states that voted against succession. They were very divided on that topic. And anyway, as a result, uh, they experienced, as you might expect, quite a few acts of violence and retribution during and after the Civil War. Their actions were not well received across the rest of Alabama, and uh, many residents of Winston County were forced to abandon their homes and flee to the northern states. After the war, uh, there continued to be enormous hostility towards residents of Winston County that went on for years, I mean, perhaps even to the time period of this novel. Well, and this is where Scout's six-year-old perspective is funny. She has no idea what any of these terms mean, but she knows they're bad. People there were Republican, you know, not Democrat like the good people of Macon. They're full of liquor interests, big mules, steel companies, Republicans, professors. And of course, in her words, they were people of no background, which is an interesting turn of phrase in this novel that's used to describe people who consist of the group that is to be condemned for being outsiders. Ah. Well, and all of these things are equally horrible in her eyes, although she has no idea what even any of them are. <laughs> I know. And Miss Caroline is an outsider uh, by virtue of being from the north, Winston County. The north of Alabama. <laughs> she doesn't know the culture. She doesn't know the people. And because she brings with her the banner of a college education, it appears she doesn't seem to feel like she needs to know either. She's educated. Formally, that is. But as Atticus points out to Scout, she still has a lot to learn. Uh, in Miss Caroline's mind, she knows better than you know these backward Southerners with no education. Hence, she introduces John Dewey. <laughs> well, before we jump into John Dewey, I would like to say you and I can do several podcast episodes on education oh. and teachers <laughs> and just all the goofiness that goes on. Anyway, Too education much. is a dangerous thing. Yes. Uh, even though that's what we do. Well, get back to John Dewey. In some ways, he's a scapegoat in all this. Uh, he's the stand-in for all educational methods and educational snobs, and believe me, there are many. And if you're in the field of education, you know that that is a very large field of snobs. I mean, everyone who's ever attended school and had a bad experience is an expert in education. That would be everyone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a fact. But uh, another fact is that everyone who has ever wanted to escape the hard work of teaching has developed a theory, and they seek to make a career out of telling others how to do it. <laughs> They're going to write a book. They're going to speak. Uh, the discussion about Dewey and Miss Caroline's arrogance in her teaching methods is really um, reminiscent of so much that goes on in education and always has. I mean, every year, dissertations are written Doctorates are given, studies are written, government grants by the millions are dispersed, and, you know, all very confidently proclaiming that this new method is the key to solving all ignorance and educational problems. Now, I'll tell you, <laughs> this has been the pattern since forever. Um, in 1915, John and Evelyn, uh, that was his daughter, not his wife, they wrote a very influential book called Schools of Tomorrow. 
It was progressive, and its final chapter was titled Democracy in Education. I mean, this book talked about learning by doing. It was project-based learning. Yeah, it was likely not the first, but it was one of the many famous programs that have been repackaged over the <laughs> years, repackaged and retread. And of course, no one uh, would accept Dewey's theories today. I mean, some of them, but they are, they've been altered greatly. But Lee seems to be taking a pot shot on the education field in general and using Dewey as a stand-in for all these progressive educational trends. Um, it is really that attitude of arrogance in academia that seems to be Lee's target here, and I like to say for good reason. Miss Caroline is not a professor. She does not have her doctorate. In fact, she's a first-grade teacher, but the principal would only be worse if she were a higher up the so-called food chain. So, you know, I'm not sure there is anything uh, more difficult than trying to teach a room full of six-year-olds how to read. I wouldn't want to do it. And uh, to Miss Caroline's credit, I'm pretty sure lots of people with doctors in education, they couldn't survive any better uh, than she does in a classroom in Macon County. And, you know, her formal education is superior to most of the community of Macon, but Lee may be suggesting that that is not the same thing as being a person with a lot of learning. No, and in her case, uh, her education has led to arrogance, and, and that's led to blindness. Thinking she knows everything, in fact, keeps her from learning, and not even Scout can help her out. Lee makes a big distinction between what is taught versus what is learned. There is a lot of learning that goes on in this book. Uh, in fact, that's what the book is about, Jim's growing up process, Scout's education. One of the most quoted passages in the whole book comes out of Chapter 3 after Scout's disastrous first day of school. Atticus gives Scout advice after she gets home and she wants to quit school altogether. I mean, <laughs> and what grade is she in? Uh, first, day one. She wants to quit. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, Atticus and his brother, who is a doctor, had never attended school. And so they have this conversation. Let's read it. First of all, he said, if you can learn a simple trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, sir, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Atticus said I had learned many things today, and Miss Caroline had learned several things herself. She had learned not to hand something to a Cunningham, for one thing, but if Walter and I had put ourselves in her shoes, we'd have seen it was an honest mistake on her part. We could not expect her to learn all Makem's ways in one day, and we could not hold her responsible when she knew no better. I mean, there's a lot going on in that quote. I know. And this book has a lot of learning. There are a lot of teachers. Um, some are good, some are bad. The Cunninghams uh, are an interesting group to look at. We'll talk about them again. They come up over and over again. And, and they kind of are dynamic in the story. They grow like Scouts does. And Scouts' relationship with them grows. Walter Cunningham, for one thing, although the kind of person who may or may not eat regularly, is very educated in his field. However, he can't get out of the first grade. There's a lot of teaching going on in, Makeham, in the Makeham Schoolhouse. But that may be one of the few places where a lot of real learning never occurs. Listen to how Scout describes her educational experience. This is Lee's humor on display. The remainder of my school days were no more auspicious than the first. Indeed, they were an endless project that slowly evolved into a unit, 
in which miles of construction paper and wax crayon were expended by the state of Alabama in its well-meaning but fruitless efforts to teach me group dynamics. <laughs> what Jim called the Dewey Decimal System was school-wide by the end of my first year, so I had no chance to compare it with other teaching techniques. I could only look around me. Atticus and my uncle, who went to school at home, knew everything at least. What one didn't know, the other did. Furthermore, I couldn't help noticing that my father had served for years in the state legislature, elected each time without opposition, innocent of the adjustments my teachers thought essential to the development of good citizenship. Jim, educated on a half-decimal, half-dunce-cap basis, <laughs> seemed to function effectively alone or in a group, but Jim was a poor example. No tutorial system devised by man could have stopped him from getting at books. As for me, I knew nothing, except what I gathered from Time Magazine and reading everything I could lay hands on at home. But as I inched sluggishly along the treadmill of the Macon County school system, I could not help receiving the impression that I was being cheated out of something, <laughs> out of what I knew not. Yet I did not believe that 12 years of unrelieved boredom was exactly what the state had in mind for me. You know... I, I wondered why Lee was so hard on school, and so I looked at, uh, a little into her personal story. Uh, I'm not saying there's a connection, but Lee's father, A.C. Lee, was primarily a self-taught man uh, who, at the age of 16, passed the examination to teach and did for three years before pursuing a law career. And by contrast, Lee's mother, um, whom she had a very strained relationship with, attended the prestigious and progressive Alabama Girls Industrial School. And I'm not saying there's a collection, uh, but leave for a college graduate is pretty hard on the institutes of learning. <laughs> I know uh, she is. And there is something for sure in this text that suggests that true education involves the humility to understand what Lee calls other people's ways, which brings us to the issue of hierarchy. Of course, in all communities, a hierarchy of power exists, and Lee introduces hers in the context of the schoolhouse before she ever takes us to the courthouse. We see the city people like the Finches and the hardworking, proud country people like the Cunninghams, the lazy, feral person and the, exp and, and the person of Burris Yule. And then, of course, African Americans are not even allowed in the schoolhouse at all. You know, these hierarchies beyond what we see in the schoolhouse are reinforced by the language and the dialect. And if you can't catch it, don't worry. Ex Scott will bring it out. Listen to how she describes Burris Yule. The boy stood up. He was the filthiest human I had ever seen. His neck was dark gray and the back of his hands were rusty and his fingernails were black deep into the quick. He peered at Miss Caroline with a fist-sized clean space on his face. Noah had noticed him, probably because Miss Caroline and I had entertained the class most of the morning. And Burris said, Miss Caroline, please bathe yourself before you come back tomorrow. The boy laughed rudely. You ain't sending me home, missus. I was on the verge of leaving. I done done my time for this year. Miss Caroline looked puzzled. What do you mean by that? The boy did not answer. He gave a short, contemptuous snort. He went on to call out, Report and be damned to you. Ain't no snot, no slut of a school teacher ever born can make me do nothing. You know, the language of the mules, it's, you know, it's violent, it's aggressive, <laughs> it's ignorant, it's abusive, and he's in the first grade. Albeit, you know, he's come the first day of school to first grade three years in a row, so Ooh. I guess, you know, he's nine. But 
if we notice there's a big difference in how each group of people talk, how they pronounce things, the words they choose. The language of the Yules is by far the most aggressive towards everyone. They degrade everyone, especially the African community, most overtly. They're also the first to resort to physical violence. Well, there is much we can talk about in terms of uh, social criticism as far as who is to blame for how things are going wrong and make them. I mean, the schoolhouse is just the start uh, as we leave the school and go into the summertime away from all the formal hierarchy of the schoolhouse. Uh, we can't escape the obvious connection between ignorance and fear. I mean, the kids are full of superstitious fears, and we can laugh at them uh, in the innocence of summer fun. Uh, they are scared of hot steams and haints and Indian heads and all terms that Lee has to define for us. Um, but that's not the only thing to be afraid of and make them. There are grown-up things to fear. Makem um, is really uh, full of both ignorance and fear, and much of this revolves around the Radley house. You know, Boo is a ghost, and he's called that. For most of the book, um, he's judged as being untrustworthy. He's a shadow of a person and has zero opportunity to defend himself. His own parents have locked him away, and you know, and everyone just watches and Every act of evil in Makem is attributed to Boo, and Scout uses the phrase, people say, to let us know that, that she, not the one making this stuff, that she's not making this up, that this is Makem talk. When people's azaleas froze in a cold snap, it was because Boo had breathed on them. Uh, the chief spokeswoman for Makem County, Miss Stephanie Crawford, said Boo was sitting in the living room cutting some items from the make him tribute to paste in his scrapbook. His father entered the room. Boo drove the scissors into his parents' leg. And, you know, this isn't a story about Boo's childhood. I mean, he was 33 at the time of this alleged event. And so we see that as we break down community into the single southern microcosm of human existence, in many ways it's unlikable. You know, the same people who are willing to help save a poor woman's home in the middle of the night from a fire can also be mean and condescending. And if Atticus is the moral voice, and we have to accept that he is, he accepts people for the way they are. They're not all good, but he's not going to say they're all bad. And I do think that's important to remember. It's also important to remember that Atticus isn't a real person. <laughs> he's a character in a story. And sometimes his character isn't the easiest to believe. In fact, he may be the least believable of all the characters in the story. But if we suspend judgment and just accept his judgments as Lee's judgments, we see a much more nuanced picture of the people of Makem and, and maybe of us. None of this is more obvious than through this wretched character of Mrs. <laughs> DuBose, the meanest woman in the world. Let's talk about her. The meanest woman in the world just happens to live in Macon <laughs> County. You know, uh, speaking of ghosts, if Boo Radley is the ghost on one side of town, Mrs. Henry Lafayette DuBose is the ghost on the other. I mean, she's truly awful. In fact, uh, Scout is clear about it. Here's a quote. Jim and I hated her, and for good reason. Um, she lives alone with her Confederate pistol and spends her days, um, if not stationed on her porch like a Confederate general guarding a culture. She's sleeping or sitting in a wheelchair. Everything she says is awful and not in the ignorant way of the Yules. She's willfully mean. Uh, she uses the basest language anyone in the book uh, has used to talk about African-Americans. 
but she does it with perfect grammar. I mean, she is highly educated. Everything she says is an insult designed to injure those weaker than her uh, by using her words. And when Scout says hey to her as she walks by, she responds with, don't say hey to me, you ugly girl. <laughs> I mean, she calls them the most disrespectful mutts that ever passed her away. And she trashes Atticus to the children on a daily basis. Jim gets furious at her cruelty, uh, but Atticus makes excuses for her. He says things like, she's an old lady and she's ill. And The interaction with Mrs. DuBose culminates a little uh, after Jim's 12th birthday when she hurls such vitriolic insults at Jim about their father that Jim will take Scout's baton. He runs flailing wildly up the steps into her yard and he cuts the top off of every one of her camellia bushes and then proceeds to break the baton. <laughs> he snapped. Yeah, yeah, you know, what's interesting about the passage, it's not that Jim did something like this. I mean, she deserves this and more. But Calpurnia and Atticus's reaction is what surprised me. Remember, those two are the moral voices of reason and courage. But why would they defend Mrs. DuBose? I mean, she deeply insults African-Americans, and Calpurnia is an African-American. She deeply insults Atticus and even takes a shot at his dead wife. This chapter is situated in a place of prominence in the book. That means it's very important for us to think about in terms of understanding the overall idea of the book. This is the final chapter of Part 1. And the book takes an entirely different turn when we get into part two. This is Lee's final summation of everything we need to inform us before she takes us into these issues of race. What is the concluding thought inherent in this passage about this horrible racist woman? Well, after the Camellia incident, which, by the way, I want to point this out. Camellias are the flower associated with the Ku Klux Klan, for whatever that's worth, you know. But anyway, after this incident where Jim destroys her camellias, Atticus forces Jim to go see her and read to her every day for five weeks. Jim and Scout are forced in, into this place of darkness. I mean, it's grotesque. It stinks. It's a place they don't want to be. Um, they watch this woman drool, and uh, they listen to her hound them for hours with... I mean, nonstop insults, and they're forbidden to respond. And she never stops from the first day until the last. And when she sees Scout in her house, she has this to say. So you brought that dirty little sister of yours, did you? Uh, you know, and there's nothing redemptive here. Her racist ideologies are neatly embodied in those uh, Ku Klux Klan camellias. And, but Atticus forces his children to endure her evil. And, you know, for what purpose? Why? What are they to learn from this? And Atticus wants Jim to see something in Mrs. Dubose, but you know, but what is it? There isn't anything to admire in her as a human. I mean, her views are terrible, and Atticus doesn't even really try to defend them. Um, he did it. He tells them after she's dead because this awful human was an example of courage, which seems not right, really, since she's a, a bully. But the courage he admires was not on the outside. He wanted him to see what it looks like to fight one's own personal demons. And he also makes a point about violence. Well, we skipped over the chapter where Atticus kills the rabid dog. But I guess I should revisit it since we can juxtapose it here with the drug addict, Mrs. DeBose, as she kind of comes off her morphine. But 
Jim and Scout up to that point think of Atticus as feeble, weak, and old. Jim especially has a hard time respecting his father's manhood. But all of that changes when they watch him shoot the rabbit dog. They learn that Atticus is pretty much a perfect shot. He leans to the right a little and always has. There's your symbolism of direction. But he's nearly perfect. He solves the disease of rabies in the town by outright killing it. Jim and Scout think that's awesome. But Atticus is ashamed of it. The idea of shooting things was something he'd let go in his past and he didn't want to go back there. His idea of courage and manhood had evolved, and they had evolved into something he saw a little, even in this unredeemable, racist, wicked woman, Mrs. DuBose. And that was the reason, the only reason, he has subjected his children to her cruelty. He said this, I wanted you to see what real courage is, instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand. It's when you know your licks before you begin, but you begin anyway, and you see it through no matter what. You rarely win, but sometimes you do. Hmm. You know, and this becomes the setup for part two of the novel. In the next episode, we're going to focus exclusively on the trial. You know, it's only uh, about 15% of the book, but it is the heart of the book. I mean, it is the heart of Lee's political and social concerns for her moment in history, but also in many ways for for ours. And uh, we will talk about the real historical cases that informed Lee's understanding of race cases in the South, as well as Atticus. I mean, uh, not as a single parent, but as a lawyer. And we, uh, we hope you enjoyed today's discussion. There was a lot to talk about, and we know we skipped over quite a bit, but there's no way not to. But we did try to hit the highlights of part one, hopefully giving you a few good things to think about, maybe some of which you hadn't thought of yet. As always, if you enjoy our podcast, please take a minute to give us a review on Apple. If that's how you listen, you know, make a comment in the comment section of any other app, uh, be it YouTube or Spotify or any other. If you're a teacher, play an episode for your whole class. You text an episode to a friend, connect with us on our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. You can find teaching resources and all kind of stuff on our social media pages. Remember, it's only when you share that we grow. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 